Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 22, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from thy womb, the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading uh, comes from the 19th chapter of John's Gospel, which you may remember is John's description of Jesus' crucifixion. I'm going to be reading from verses 23 through 30. Listen for the word of God. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loves standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Many of us in our country are deeply concerned about the language that some people are now using to disagree with one another. It's not just the language 
that expresses disagreements about programs and policies. It's language that demeans and humiliates the other person. An obvious example is the crude and abusive language used by several presidential candidates this election season. Unfortunately, though, the problem is not just the language used by our presidential candidates. It's language that pervades our politics at all levels. And it would be one thing if this problem were restricted to our political world. But the same thing seems to be happening in the rest of our society as well. Sadly, even in the church. As we in the church have struggled in recent years over issues related to human sexuality, debates in congregations and presbyteries across the country occasionally have gone beyond differences about scripture and theology. The other point of view, whatever it may be, has been demonized, and those who hold it no longer understood to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what are we to make of this? Both in our politics and especially within the life of the church, what does Christian faith have to say about language used to judge and condemn other people? The Apostle Paul wrote letters to Christians in a situation remarkably similar to our own. The Christians in Corinth were bitterly divided into bitter into different parties, so bitterly divided that they could not celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And they, too, had difficulty viewing their opponents as Christian brothers and sisters. So how did Paul deal with this problem? At the beginning of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul directs them to Jesus' cross. From the world's point of view, Paul argues, the cross seems like folly and weakness. But from the gospel's perspective, the cross is the power and wisdom of God. In the second chapter of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminds them that he did not come to them with lofty words of wisdom. And then he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What a remarkable thing to say. For I resolved or decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we follow Paul's advice, if we need know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, what does Jesus' cross have to say to us about the situation in which we find ourselves in a divided society and a divided church? a church and a society in which many of us seem to enjoy demeaning and condemning other people. Before we can answer that question, we have to look first, as Paul suggests we do, at the cross itself. Does the New Testament speak with a single voice about the meaning of the cross? All four Gospels in the New Testament 
give us accounts of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And for the most part, they agree on what took place at Golgotha. But they differ on some important details, such as what exactly were Jesus' last words on the cross. And this detail is important because it might suggest that the Gospels have different interpretations of the meaning of the cross. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus' dying words are a quotation from the first verse of Psalm 22, as we have heard this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For centuries, Christians have debated how we should understand these words. To some, Jesus' words are a cry of despair that God has abandoned him. They have been described as Jesus' cry of dereliction, Jesus' experience of God-forsakenness. To others, Jesus' last words are anything but a cry of despair. They point out that if we read the first verse of Psalm 22 in the context of the entire psalm, it seems more like a strong affirmation of faith in God than it does a cry of despair. So which is it? Are Jesus' last words from the cross in Mark a cry of despair? Or are they a cry of faith? Or are they somehow both? In our New Testament text today from John's Gospel, we read yet a different interpretation of Jesus' last words. For John, Jesus' last words are neither a cry of despair nor a cry of faith, but a cry of victory. It is finished, exclaims the dying Jesus. So what are we to make of the differences between John and Mark, and if we had time, the differences in all the, uh, the Gospels in their descriptions of Jesus' death? Unlike in Mark, where Jesus appears to be the passive victim of the evil done to him, in John, Jesus seems to be actively directing everything that happens. For example, in, in John, Jesus does not need Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross, as he does in Mark's gospel. John tells us that Jesus carries his cross by himself. In chapter 10, Jesus says that no one will take his life from him because I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. In John, Jesus on the cross, as in the rest of his ministry, seems very much in control of what is going on. How then are we to understand Jesus' last words in John? It is finished. Two things seem clear. First, these words are Jesus' acknowledgement that his earthly life is now over. His earthly story is coming to its conclusion. And secondly, 
the Greek word finished, used twice in our passage, is the same word John uses in verse 28, where we read, After this, when Jesus knew that all was finished, he said, in order to fulfill scripture, I am thirsty. These words, I am thirsty, are from Psalm 69. And they are used by John to show that Jesus fulfills what the prophets and the Psalms have said about the Messiah. In his death on the cross, Jesus fulfills or or finishes the witness of the Old Testament. So Jesus' last words in John, it is finished, mean both that his earthly life is over and that he has fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But is that all that Jesus means when he says it is finished? I think not. And in order to understand what else these words mean, we must think about them in the larger context of John's story about Jesus. You may remember that John's gospel includes a story in chapter 8 that many New Testament scholars believe was added after the gospel was originally written. Although a later edition... The story fits beautifully with who, John, with who Jesus is in John's gospel. In the story, Jesus is teaching in the temple when the scribes and Pharisees bring him a woman who has been caught in adultery. They are about to stone her to death in accordance with the law of Moses. They ask Jesus what he thinks, and he responds, Let anyone among you who is without sin cast the first stone. The scribes and Pharisees drop their stones and leave. Jesus asked the woman, Has no one condemned you? No one, she responds. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Remember also in John's gospel, the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in chapter three. God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John's gospel, as in the other three gospels, Pilate has a sign with Jesus' crime nailed to the cross, the king of the Jews. The unstated message in this sign is that there is no king but Caesar, and this horrible death by crucifixion awaits anyone who would dare challenge Roman hegemony. And so Jesus is judged, condemned, and executed for sedition. The deep irony in all of this, of course, is something Pilate cannot possibly imagine. That Jesus is indeed king, not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. Pilate judges and condemns him to death on the cross. But what Pilate does not understand is that his victim, this crucified Jew, is the victor over judgment 
and condemnation, and as such is Pilate's Savior. That's what Jesus means when he says with his last breath, it is finished. Judgment is finished. Condemnation is finished. The apparently endless, apparently inevitable cycle of human judgment and condemnation ends on the cross. That recurring cycle in which we judge and condemn others and are ourselves judged and condemned is broken. I do not condemn you, says Jesus, both to the woman caught in adultery and to you and to me. Jesus does not judge and condemn because, again, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So then why is it so difficult for us to extricate ourselves from this endless cycle of condemnation and judgment? We just cannot seem to stop judging other people. And let's be clear here. In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not yourself be judged, he's not saying there is anything wrong with suggesting to our neighbors ways in which they can live more faithful lives. Jesus is not warning against constructive judgments that promote growth. He's warning against judgments that condemn. Because when we condemn, we place someone beyond the pale, beyond forgiveness, beyond the possibility of redemption. We exclude them from community. But we seem to be unable to stop doing just that, judging and condemning others. Now, why is that? Perhaps, just perhaps, because deep down in the dark recesses of our own souls, we cannot stop judging and condemning ourselves. How could God possibly be able to forgive in us that which we believe to be unforgivable? It is this deadly logic, this trap, that is broken on Jesus' cross. It is all this judgment, condemnation, self-hatred that is finished on the cross. As Rowan Williams, formerly Archbishop of Canterbury, puts it, Jesus' cross is God's judgment on judgment. What we learn in the Jesus story is that an unimaginable reversal takes place on Jesus' cross. The leaders of the Jewish temple and the Roman authorities are Jesus' judges. It is they who judge him. He is their victim. But from the perspective of Easter, from the perspective of the resurrection, the crucified Jesus is not the victim, but the judge who judges his judges. And this judge, unlike all others, does not judge and condemn. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Go your way and sin no more. 
Grace happens, Williams writes, when the Jewish and Roman judges turn to their victim and recognize him as their hope and their savior. We cannot escape our guilt by continuing to judge others. That only perpetuates the endless cycle of judgment and self-condemnation. We cannot outrun our guilt. The more we judge and condemn others, the more we judge and condemn ourselves. That vicious cycle is broken only when we allow our victims to become our saviors. Only when we follow Jesus to his cross and allow him to forgive in us what we believe to be unforgivable, what we believe to be beyond redemption. Now, is all this too much? Does it, as they say, beggar belief? Is the end of judgment and condemnation unrealistic in the rough and tumble world of American politics or in our deeply divided church? Don't tell that to the family and friends of the nine people who were murdered by Dylan Roof at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. Those family and friends who at, at Roof's bond hearing told him they forgave him and were praying for his soul. It is surely no coincidence that it was the family and friends of people who faithfully studied the Bible together who did what the news media found to be so extraordinary. Forgiving Ruth and praying for his soul was something they learned how to do in Scripture's witness to the crucified Jesus, to the Jesus who said, it is finished. And don't tell that to the family and friends of those 10 Amish girls who were shot to death at their schoolhouse a few years ago in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Those, those family and friends who forgave the shooter and visited his wife and parents in order to comfort them. Such extravagant acts of compassion, forgiveness, and grace were performed by ordinary people. They were not extraordinary, but as ordinary as you and I. They were performed by extraordinary people who were set free from the self-destructive cycle of judgment and condemnation, set free by the one who, with his dying breath, said, it is finished. If you think all of this is just too much to believe, too good to be true, remember the words of the angels to the women at the empty tomb in Luke's gospel. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The risen Jesus is not found in judgment, condemnation, and death. He is not found in language that demeans and humiliates others. The living Jesus is found in forgiveness, compassion, and life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue in the spirit of prayer. 
Today, we call upon you, God, who is far greater than homophobia, racism, and police brutality. Won't you come help us in our weakness? We are afflicted in every way, afflicted with never-ending violence and acts of hate. Even before we could fully lament the affliction of homophobia in Orlando, we are afflicted with racism in Louisiana and Minnesota. We're afflicted with hatred for the law enforcement resulting in five dead police officers in Dallas. Indeed, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Strengthen your people, your church, your world, that we may stand in unity and continue to fight for justice in midst of tragedies and seemingly insurmountable heap of injustice that threatens to swallow us whole. You have said it is finished. We pray for the day that homophobia is finished, systematic racism is finished, police brutality is finished. May that day be today. Today we call upon you, O Jesus, whose love is far more powerful than the truck-driving terrorists of Nice in France or the military coup in Turkey. Won't you intercede for us with groans too deep for words? We are perplexed at every turn, perplexed by spine-chilling cruelty that have destroyed 84 innocent lives and their loved ones even as they were celebrating freedom and liberty on the streets of Nice. Perplexed at the attempted military coup in Turkey that has left 265 dead. Perplexed at senseless killings that beget more killings. Our hearts are completely shattered at our broke, utterly broken world. Indeed, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Help us to hope in you today, in your cross, in your love, in your empty tomb, and in your peace that transcends all understanding. Today, we call upon your spirit who searches our hearts and knows our pain and the depth of our guilt. Won't you comfort us, heal us, and free us from self-condemnation and judgment? We are struck down by depression, desperation, anxiety, sense of helplessness in the face of grave injustices of this world and deviant longings of our own hearts. We are struck down by hate, apathy, judgment, and disappointments that have somehow found a home in our lives. Indeed, we are struck down, but not destroyed. Help us to find rest for our souls under the shadow of your wings today in your loving kindness where we long to dwell always. Today, help us realize that all lives cannot matter unless black lives matter, unless brown lives matter, unless the undocumented immigrants' lives matter, unless the falsely imprisoned lives matter, unless the refugee lives matter, unless the lives of those who are most vulnerable and in the margins of our society matter right now, right here in our nation and beyond. For the threat of black lives is a threat of lives everywhere. For injustice here is injustice everywhere. But you have said it is finished. We put our hope and faith in what you have accomplished on the cross. Today, may our reality be your kingdom. Today, may our will align with yours. 
Today, may our hearts be filled with your grace. Today, may our warring nations find peace. Today, may our words of hope, justice, and love start to shape the narrative of your people, your church, this nation, and the world. And all this we ask in the name of the one who has taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.